Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Adam Miller, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No, not a problem at all. Glad to have you back. I think this is like your third time back on the podcast. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. Adam Miller is the author of a book, uh, Future Mormon, uh, Essays in Mormon Theology. It was a really fun read, Adam. But before we jump into the book, would you mind just giving the listeners, I know there's probably one or two out there that maybe don't know who Adam Miller is. Would you just briefly describe maybe yourself and give us a, a brief bio? Yeah. Uh, I'm Adam Miller. I I'm a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. I work uh, primarily in contemporary European philosophy and philosophy of religion. Uh, and under that umbrella, I do some work in Mormon studies, too. Uh, thematically, my main interest has been uh, grace, especially grace as it's manifest in kind of ordinary, everyday life experiences. My wife is a biology professor. We have three kids. I grew up in Pennsylvania, kind of a small Mormon church experience. Uh, served a mission in Albuquerque. Went to BYU. Uh, did my graduate work at Villanova. Um, that's about it, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. I, uh, having opened the book and just jumping into the very intro, and there was a line in the book that just, it just, I don't know how to say it, it just really just struck a, a chord with me. It just was beautiful. And I wanted to have you maybe just kind of start us off talking about that. It's, it's in the intro and it's, it's a quote where you say, if Mormonism continues to matter, it will be because they, rather than leaving, were willing to be Mormon all over again. Um, maybe just talk for a moment about that line and, and what your thoughts were behind kind of that statement. Well, in the introduction, I talk, uh, a little bit about uh, my children, uh, my children and their grandchildren, as as the future Mormons mentioned in the title. And I think part of what's at stake in Mormonism is the fact that because Mormonism is organized around introducing us to a, a certain kind of life, to living life in a certain kind of way the kind of life that Paul calls uh, a life in Christ, right? All of our doctrines, all of our institutions, all of our rituals, they're all organized around initiating us uh, into an experience of this different kind of life. Uh, because the kind of life is at the center of, of Mormonism, uh, every life has to start over from scratch, working its way into this different kind of Christian experience, this different kind of life that's life in Christ. And so every generation, right, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how well the previous generation did. It doesn't really matter in some respects how many, uh, how many of the dots any previous generation connected. Every generation has to start again and they have to be, they have to figure out how to live this kind of life, how to live this um, Mormon Christian version of life all over again from the inside out. Uh, and that's, uh, in some ways that's, 
that's something that causes great alarm uh, to us. The fact that uh, you know our kids are going to have to start all over from from scratch here and work their way into it, just just as we have had to and are having to still do. Uh, but in other ways, it's, it's the good news too: is that uh, we're we're pe- we're perpetually getting uh, a new start here on on these new lives that Christ is offering us, and and the challenge of living these lives is uh, is being being willing to step up to the plate and uh, and start again. Every generation, every new context, uh, every new world, uh, and to see what living a life in Christ looks like uh, in these worlds as as our worlds change. Is there is there in that line? Is there also just a little bit of like a, a pleading to your kids, like don't leave the church, stay and make Mormonism your own? Is is there a little bit of that behind it too? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, you know already the world that my kids are growing up in is very different from the world that that I grew up in, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of the world that I grew up in, I'm, I'm not sad to see it go. Right, a lot of that world, a lot of that world deserves to be uh, left on the the dustbin of history. But a lot of that world too, uh, it's scary to think that a lot of the things that that mattered most to me in my world growing up uh, will be harder for them to uh, to see. I think from the perspective that their world offers, and so I mean, I think I want. Uh, I want them to find a way to to pick up and, and bring back to life and uh, and reanimate the things that have mattered most to me about uh, my experience. And part of that, without a doubt, is Mormonism. But I hope they find a way to do it too that uh, that leaves behind a lot of the things that uh, a lot of the things about about my world that that aren't worth keeping. Beautiful, beautiful. There's a section where you, you know, again, I know that grace is, as you pointed out, is the thing that you like to talk about the most, and it's one that you've spent a lot of time kind of studying different angles. But you use a line in the book where you say the terror of grace. Um, why are we afraid of grace, and, and why does it scare us? What What is it about Mormonism that seems to have us as a culture be be hesitant to kind of interact with grace? Well, I don't think it's unique to Mormon culture. I think it's a kind of basic feature of human experience. Uh, if we take, for instance, I think the kind of baseline definition of sin that we get from Paul and uh, his letter to the Romans, uh, what sin looks like is an active suppression of God's grace, our active suppression of God's grace, our kind of active flight from the kinds of things that God is trying to give us. Uh, and the reason that we're running away is because grace uh, is scary. And the thing that's... Uh, I think that there's a couple things about grace that make grace kind of scary. At one level, grace is scary just because it means we're being given things that we can't control. And there's a kind of loss of control on our part. Uh, in the face of grace, grace is a name for these things that that come without our having earned or deserved or probably even in some ways wanted what's being given and and in the face of that loss of control we we tend to flinch and run away and head for cover uh, and a lot I think a lot of what God gives to us 
uh, a lot of what God is trying to give to us, we're reluctant to receive because it doesn't match up very well with what it is that we thought we wanted to get from God. Uh, and I think part of it, too, is, you know, given the kind of finite, uh, limited people that we are, constrained by space and time in the way that we are, God can only continue to give us things uh, by continuing to take things away from us. Right? I can only receive so many things at once as a human being. And so for God to continue to give me things, uh, I have to continue to let go of things at the same time. So that all of God's giving also takes the form of a kind of taking. And we're reluctant on one front to receive the things that didn't look like what we thought we wanted, and we're also reluctant on the other front to let go of the things that we thought we did. Uh, and all of that, I think, makes grace a difficult thing for, for human beings in general. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I agree, and I, and I think we do struggle, we do struggle in that interaction. Um, you've got a, there's a, there's a spot in the book where you play out this interaction that we find in the Book of Mormon between Jacob and Sherem. And, and I love the way you approach this. There's this idea that the two of them are talking past each other, that they're, they're both stereotyping the other as an extreme. And, uh, and rather than kind of deal with this middle ground where, where really the people of the church would find themselves, um, they're just kind of working from these stereotypes. Maybe talk for a moment why you use that example in the book and, and maybe relate that to where we're at today, either within the world or in the church specifically, uh, how we kind of do those kinds, same kinds of things. And I'm certainly guilty of it myself. Well, this is a story that's told in the Book of Mormon in Jacob chapter 7, right, where Sherem uh, uh, searches out Jacob and accuses uh, Jacob of having introduced uh, all these uh, all these novel and suspect revelatory ideas about Christ and that this in some way was compromising the ability of the people to be faithful to the law of Moses. Uh, and of course, Jacob objects to this and, uh, and, uh, Sharon gets painted as, as an antichrist who is in turn failing to see the true meaning of the law of Moses. And this was a chapter that, uh, last summer, uh, in New York City, in New York City at the Union Theological Seminary, we, we spent a couple weeks working on as part of a Mormon theology seminar. And as we were reading that text together, I was I was really struck by the way that in this conversation between Jacob and Sherem, uh, both of them seem to be working uh, from a place of, of pretty honest uh, and well-meaning intentions with respect to preserving the integrity of their religious convictions, but that for most of the time, Jacob and Sherem also seem to just be talking right past each other, right? Having having really missed uh, the heart of what the other person was trying to say, and maybe especially why the other person was saying what they were saying. And it struck me that it, uh, it's kind of a nice uh, this conversation, the conversation that unfolds between Jacob and Sherem, is kind of, kind of a nice example of the way that, uh, in general, as human beings, our relationships with other people. Uh, are structured by kind of prefabricated roles uh, that we have ready to go in the story that we'd like to tell about ourselves and that when we bump into other people, we automatically try to slot people into these prefabricated roles 
in the story that we'd like to tell about ourselves. Uh, and we end up kind of dancing around each other as a result, never quite connecting with each other because we're always relating to each other by way of these, by way of these prefabricated filters. Uh, and part of what happens, I think, in, in Jacob 7, in this story that relates the, the interaction between Jacob and Cherub is that both Jacob and Sharon, I think, reach a point in that story uh, where those roles kind of break down and they end up exposed to the reality of the other person in a way that uh, that they weren't prepared to do at the beginning. And that's the moment in the story, I think, when when Christ enters in, right? That's the moment when the grace of the other person that, that wasn't quite what Jacob or Sharon wanted uh can show up and allow both Jacob and Sharon to, to receive something from the other person that they weren't prepared to when they started. And that's a, that's pretty common, I think. I mean, this is just, uh, there's nothing, there's nothing especially extreme, I think, or, or, uh, uh, there's nothing that's especially unique to religious experience about this, or it's just kind of a basic feature of the way that as human beings we, we use these little interpersonal widgets, uh, to just make our way through the world on a daily basis. When, when I was reading that section, Adam, it <clears throat> it made me think of the story where Moroni and Pahoran are having this back and forth by letter. Right, yeah. And, and, and Moroni is almost doing kind of the same thing, right? He just makes assumptions about Pahoran. And it's not until he gets the letter back from Pahoran where Pahoran's telling him, like, look, the situation's way different than you understand it to be. And, and finally, Moroni kind of has to put himself in Pahoran's shoes and understand the situation that – there seems to be a lot more of this, like, okay, now let me kind of meet you where you are rather than where I, my assumptions of where you are. And, and I, I just think it's kind of a nice thing to find through scripture. Often scripture comes off to me as very two dimensional. But as you point out, if we just dig a little further, you know, towards the end of this Jacob and Sherem story, we begin to get some more depth. Yeah. And that's a great example with, with Moroni and Pahorn, right? To both of their immense credit, they were willing to swallow their pride and, uh, you know, act with a little integrity and humility and, and see what the other person was, where the other person was actually coming from. And that's, that in the end is, I mean, uh, that in the end is a substantial part of what life in Christ look like, looks like, right? Being, being willing to step outside of our prideful stories and, uh, connect with things that weren't what we thought we wanted. Right. And as you put it, that's another way to extend grace to somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Throughout the book, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please, you know, correct me here where I'm wrong, but throughout the book, I felt like there was this underlying theme that you're hitting on. Maybe this is just me because I always take these kinds of angles, but, but that the church, the church is true, but maybe it's true just a little different or maybe a lot different than the way we frame it. That maybe we have to go back to some of the ways we frame things and just reconsider and think through and, and, and better understand how we framed it in the past, maybe how we're framing it in the present. And realize that, that change happens and that in some ways to become uh, closer related with, with truth that we may have to make change going forward as well. Is, am I picking up on that or is that, is that not really there? Well, as a, as a professional philosopher, this is the kind of question that uh, is of perennial interest, right? The kind of question that doesn't ask, that doesn't, that doesn't just ask what is true, but asks questions about what does it mean for something to be true in the first place? Uh, and I think in general, 
we tend to to have a pretty a pretty static a pretty two dimensional notion of what truth looks like that doesn't really hold up very well uh, when we ask serious questions about what does it mean to say that something is true or even what are the different ways in which something could be true so for instance as mormons uh, uh our scripture takes very seriously the idea that all things in the end are material right that there is no such thing as immaterial spirit right even spirit itself is a kind of is a kind of matter uh so i there are different places in the book where i ask questions like well what would it mean uh, to take seriously the idea that truth itself uh is a is a is a material thing what would it mean to take both time and matter uh as essential features of truths. Uh, and if we if we think about truth as a material thing and as something that is itself uh that does itself belong to the stream of time that we ourselves also belong to, then I think uh you know we can we end up thinking about truth in 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 very pre- different and often very practical kinds of ways that that we might not otherwise. Yeah. You um there's a section of the book where, again, I know this is, like, this book is really cool. You take, like, different chapters or sections and you're essentially analyzing, uh, scholars' work or talks in the church or ideas that have been presented and kind of just having gone through them yourself, presenting kind of your own, your own thoughts and reflections on each of those. And one of those is the talk from President Uchtdorf, I think maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, on grace, the gift of grace, I think was the title of the talk. And, and you reflect on, on his talk and I, I want to set this up this way. The church used to teach this grace kind of in a, I felt like in a very different way 20, 30 years ago. The Bible Dictionary, um, Elder McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith, some of the ideas they would, they would teach. And again, I grant that it's not, it's not completely one dimensional. There is variation from people throughout time, you know, throughout church talks. Gerald Lund, for instance, comes to mind who gave a great talk on grace that kind of posed a different way of framing it. But it feels like it was a much more check-the-box kind of grace, where grace would come in at the end after you did all that you could do. Uh, and it's certainly there's been some of that from the interpretation of Second Nephi 25, 23. But over time, people in the background, not, not church leaders, but scholars and professors at BYU and others, begin to kind of, kind of shift our focus. Stephen Robinson comes to mind, Robert Millett, um, Brad Wilcox recently in the way that they frame grace. And it seems like for the very first time officially in the church, there was somebody picking up on those ideas when President Uchtdorf, I think very heavily borrows from Brad Wilcox's ideas on what is grace and how to frame it. But what you do, and I think this is really cool because I, I subscribe very much to this Uchtdorf way of grace. And I just, in my mind, that's the only grace there is and that's how it works. And yet you've been one throughout Mormonism to constantly remind me that while, while Uchtdorf's grace is certainly valid, the way he frames it, that there are tons of different ways beyond that, that grace is working. And, and you again remind us in this reflection of, uh, of grace, maybe talk for a moment about how Mormonism has developed grace and its theology and, and why why you see that Uchtdorf's approach is really only one facet of grace within Mormonism. And I know that's a, I know that's a, probably a 40 minute question, but maybe give us kind of a brief answer. Yeah. Well, I think grace is something that we've, that we've always 
talked a lot about and for a long time in Mormonism, though I think uh, it's only recently that we've been more comfortable using the word grace to talk about things that fall under that under that category of grace. So I think part of what we've seen is uh, in the church is a kind of uh, uh, growing comfortableness with the idea of using what we used to see as a Protestant word to describe what is in fact just a basic element of Christian experience universally. So I think that's part of it. I think, uh, as you pointed out, uh, part of the big shift we've seen in the way that we use the word grace uh, in Mormonism is that we've kind of moved from using it simply as uh, a description of uh, what Christ contributes to our salvation in at the last moment after we have already done all that was in our power to do, right? So, it's a, so that grace would, in that scenario, arrive as a kind of uh, last-minute stopgap that would fill in whatever holes are left in my own perfection, however big or small those holes might be. And the kind of the kind of corrective I think that we saw in President Uchtdorf's talk uh, in April 2015 on the gift of grace uh, is that President Uchtdorf wants to uh, wanted to make clear that that grace is in fact active throughout the entire experience of salvation. It's not just the thing that happens at the end; it's both the thing that happens at the in, at the beginning and the middle and at the end. Right? That, that grace really is uh, is the animating force at work in the whole of our experience of redemption in life in Christ. Uh, the suggestion that I wanted to make beyond that was that in addition to thinking about grace as a feature, uh, even a universal feature of our experience of salvation, that we need to take a step beyond that and see the way that grace is operative in the whole of our human experience. Uh, and one way to do this, for instance, uh, is to take the kind of model that... Uh, Elder McConkie offered uh, the three pillars of eternity right? with the first pillar of eternity is the creation the second pillar of eternity is the fall and the third pillar of eternity is atonement so we've done a much better job of seeing the way that grace is pivotal to our experience of atonement that is to the third pillar but I think we need to expand our vision of grace to see the way that grace is fundamental both to our experience of the fall and even more fundamental to our experience of creation I would want to see, uh, I think, following Paul here, especially letter to the Romans, I would want to see grace, uh, the most fundamental expression of grace, as the act of creation itself. A kind of, uh, and creation not as a one-time event, but as, but as, uh, as an ongoing event in which you and I participate. And I think if we do that, uh, then we can make a lot better sense in the end, not only of, of the role that grace plays in creation and the fall, but if we use this larger context, then we can make a lot better sense of the role that grace is playing in atonement as well. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, We're talking today with Adam Miller, author of Future Mormon Essays in Mormon Theology. You have a a phrase in the book, uh, fearless Mormon thinking, and I love that. Um, I just, I wonder, I wonder if we're there yet. It, it, It feels to me as one who spends a lot of time with with those kind of on the margins that we're not there yet members seem seem hesitant uh, to discuss you know frankly difficult issues mm-hmm. uh, leaders seem to be you know 
more comfortable posing, kind of knowing better than than faith or hope. I, just in the last conference, President Uchtdorf said, look, if you don't know and you, you just have hope, hope's a great place to start. The church seems, and again, I, I, these are all things that I, I'm framing from my point of view. I get that, that this may not be the way it is, but the church seems unwilling yet to to really have hard conversations about acknowledging um, many of the contraries that exist in our faith and how reasonable it is to draw a multitude of conclusions, which I, which I love your writing, Adam, because you're often kind of pushing us to think of things in new ways that we've never even touched before. And I, I really appreciate that. And, and yet these are exactly the conversations that a person in a faith construction needs to have some breathing room to be able to have. They need to have that kind of space. Um, your thoughts on fearless Mormon thinking, are we there yet? I mean, uh, where are we at with, with kind of having that be, be a framework within our faith. Well, um, this refers to a chapter in the book that uh, the title of which is a manifesto for the future of Mormon thinking, which is uh, a pretty pretentious title. But uh, the topic, uh, the essay uh, here was was commissioned in a sense by someone who asked me to to write something about what I thought the future of Mormon thinking looked like, and so it got me thinking about this and. Uh, what I proposed was that uh, uh, in the future, I proposed that Mormon thinking would be characterized by a kind of fearlessness. And uh, the reason that I proposed this was uh, because I think the key to fearlessness, right, as is pointed out by John in in First John chapter four, right, the key to fearlessness uh, is that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Right, so that if if it's the case, and surely it is, uh, that not just we as a church, but but human beings in general, right, we are we are failing in crucial ways to love each other. Uh, that failure manifests in part in our failure to be fearless, to be fearless in caring for each other, and to be fearless in thinking about the things that matter to us. So that the the key to thinking about things fearlessly uh, is, it turns out, love. Right? With without charity, thinking will be nothing, because without charity, thinking will fail to have the kind of fearlessness uh, that can get us outside uh, the confines of our own narrow opinions about things and connect us with what's actually true. Excellent, excellent. And, and you, you seem to be kind of hitting too on this idea, right? Mormonism, Mormonism is truth. And, and I totally get kind of where you were talking about earlier that truth, we kind of think in our minds, like we can just like, this is truth. We know what is true. Here it is. Let's just list it. And yet truth is certainly more fluid than that. And, and we're all trying, we all see truth from different angles. We all see perspectives and those perspectives are always changing. What we, the way we saw it five years ago is different than the way we're going to see it now or five years from now. And yet Mormonism is truth. And, Meaning that we should all be seeking after it and we shouldn't be afraid of it and we should be willing to kind of grapple with that. And, and I just want to, like, it seems like you're hitting on that a little bit. And, and I love that you're pointing out that we need true love or charity to be able to do that fully. But really Mormonism should have nothing to fear. It, it, it really should grasp truth as Joseph Smith said, wherever it, wherever we find it, right? Yeah, optimally. <laughs> optimally, I think. You know, as a, as a philosopher, I would suggest uh, that we might be better off, in general, thinking about truth as a verb rather than a noun. 
right? We like to think about truth as if it were a kind of noun that we could, that's the static, that's fixed, that I could wrap up and put in a drawer and pull out when I needed it and put it back in there for safekeeping when I wasn't worried about it. Um, but I don't think that's—I don't think that's a very good count of of what truth is, or or the way that it works, especially the kinds of truths that are crucial to a Christian experience, right? The kinds of truths that are crucial to living life in Christ. Those kinds of truths—I I think this applies to all truths, but especially those kinds of truths—they're more like a verb, right? Truth is truth is a kind of work that has to be done. It's a kind of bridge that has to be built. It's a kind of uh, uh, collaborative construction project uh, that can't, by definition, be finished. Uh, truth is a kind of thing that has to be uh, that has to be performed by us uh, and performed in a way that doesn't just say what's true, but says what's true truthfully. Right? We have to present truths to in a way that. Uh, that take into account my being truthful in presenting them. So I think in general, in general, we need, we need a more, we need a more, we need a more open, collaborative, uh, constructive, a verb type, active notion of truth rather than a kind of passive, static notion of truth. I think that kind of, that kind of active notion of truth takes better account, for instance, of the role that uh, agency plays in in our experience of things like like love and, and grace in Christ. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, chapter eleven of your book is titled "Every Truth Is a Work, Every Object Is a Covenant." And, and most of my listeners, as you well know, most of my listeners are people who are kind of struggling with church history. They're they're struggling with some of the the approaches the church makes to social issues, and and they're just kind of trying to navigate that. They want to stay in, but but they feel this tension and sometimes the tension becomes too great and, and, and some of the saints step away. And I, I want to play on a little section here where you kind of delve into some of the philosophy behind historicity. And, and there's a quote you have on page 111 of your book. Um, and you ask several questions here and I find these to be really, really neat for us to kind of just spend a moment talking about kind of where we go with these questions and, and, and what you're kind of asking the, the reader to kind of step back and just ponder for a little bit. It says, don't assume that the Book of Mormon is or isn't scientifically plausible. Make the Book of Mormon scientifically plausible. Does its account of creation square with evolution, with Native American DNA, with, gen- with geology on a scale of billions of years, with light years of empty space? Let them pollinate each other and see what new things grow. And I wonder if you just spend a moment, like, helping the reader understand, like, like, the way you're wanting them to kind of step back and look at these things and, and maybe just shift their framework or their framing just a little bit so that they might be open to new possibilities. Um, well, this is a, this, this is a kind of, uh, philosophical sandbox, right? In which we can conduct certain kinds of experiments in terms of how we think about truth. And if we think about truth in a different way, how we might think about the Book of Mormon, uh, in a different way, uh, and as as I noted uh, in response to the last question, one of the basic features of of this conceptual sandbox is that I suggest that we think about truth as a kind of verb rather than a kind of noun. Um, that, for instance, if we take something like the Book of Mormon, then we might think about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon 
uh, as a verb, as a kind of work to be done, rather than as a kind of static fact and evidence that we could put in a drawer and keep for safekeeping later, right? But the but the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon is a kind of work that you and I have to to do. We have to we have to engage with the book in a way that produces truthfulness, uh, and that we need to, in particular, be willing to explore the range of possible truths that the Book of Mormon can produce. Some of these truths may be historical in character. Right, we need to explore the range of ways in which the book, the ways, in, the range of ways in which uh, we can build the Book of Mormon's historical truthfulness out into what we know about the rest of world history. But we need to also be um, be brave and be willing to explore the ways in which we can build out the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon existentially, or scientifically, uh, or socially. Uh, or politically, right? There, there are all different kinds of ways in which the Book of Mormon can uh, be used as raw material here for building truths, uh, and only some of those are historical. And I think it's often the case that that the historical, that the ways in which it is open to uh, to building historical truth, don't turn out to be, even by the book's own account, the most important ways in which the Book of Mormon is true. Right, that in, that in essence, I think you you and I talked about this before in our last interview, where you said, you know, Moroni is essentially asking us to pray about the truths that are in the book, rather than to focus on whether he was a real person or not, and and I love that because I think that um, whenever we're dealing with some of these things in, in historicity, whether we're talking about the Book of Abraham or or the Book of Mormon or other other items within the church. You seem to kind of take this approach that it's we're better off kind of stepping back and seeing if there's value in in the truth of the message rather than being so focused on the historicity of the people who are writing the message down well there are certain there are certain kinds of things that are that are available for me immediately to verify, and there are certain kinds of things that aren't right for instance i'm it's not within my power. Uh, to verify or not that Moroni was an actually existing historical individual. Uh, that's not in my power. But I can verify in very concrete, very immediate, very substantial and convincing in life-changing ways that the kinds of descriptions that the Book of Mormon gives us of what life in Christ looks like can in fact transform from the inside out my own experience of life. And in the end, if that's what the Book of Mormon does, in that very concrete, very substantial way, right? This is not, this is not just the, Bo- the Book of Mormon is not boiled down to, to metaphor. If we can't verify its historical bona fides, uh, what we have here instead, I think, front and center, is is the concrete, substantial, existential, life on the ground opportunity for verification that comes when I put the Book of Mormon's teachings to the test in my own experience of life. And in the end, whether the Book of Mormon is or isn't historical, uh, the only justification for my caring about the book is its, its, is its capacity to, to bring Christ alive in me. Uh, I don't know when, I mean, we could, for instance, we could verify that the Book of Mormon was historical, and like, we still wouldn't know whether or not uh, it was capable of bringing Christ alive in us. Right, but uh, 
in the end, either way, the only thing that matters is whether it's capable of doing is whether it's capable of doing that. Right. That's beautiful. And I, and I think those who are struggling need need to hear that, and they and they need to know that, like sometimes it's just okay to set that. The, the truth of historicity aside for perhaps just taking a step back and seeing if there's other truths that are of way more worth. I, uh, I want to kind of finish up with, with just a final question. In the book, um, in chapter 12, you talk about the body of Christ. And I, and I feel like in our church culturally and, and theology, you know, when we theologize about these things, we often talk about the body of Christ being members of the church. But you kind of, at least shift us just a little bit. You talk about the body of Christ, that all of us are broken, that, that we all, you know, have need of redemption. And, and you at least put in the thought in my mind, and it's something I've hit on before and, and throughout the podcast, that, that the body of Christ is all of us. And I know that the Savior has this reference where, you know, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of thee. And yet I often feel like if we're the hand, for instance, in the church, we're often saying like we're the most important part. And and you see, and again, I don't think you're saying this directly, but you're kind of shifting the focus that that everyone really is the body of Christ and we're all broken. We all have need of redemption. Maybe just kind of uh, take us home with, with some thoughts on the body of Christ and and maybe how all of us could kind of be more inclusive of who that is and maybe also some self-reflection on we probably, even within the church, need a little more help than we, we sometimes want to to think, or for those who perhaps feel broken, that that they also ought to recognize that all of us, all of us are broken and, and hence not, not be too hard on themselves either. Well, these reflections on the body of Christ, they come up in the in the context of a, of a short chapter where I'm reflecting on uh, the usefulness of a question like, is the church true? That's a, that's a kind of question that, that we like to put center stage in our religious lives. Is the church true? Uh, but I wonder if, if in the end, uh, that kind of question can return to us the kind of answer that we're actually looking for. Right? In lots of ways, that kind of question, is the church true? It seems, it seems ill-suited. To the kind of uh, uh, deep existential need that's motivating uh, our asking that question, right? Because uh, that question is the church true. It, it frames religious experience uh, as being fundamentally about one, the status of an institution, the church as an institution, and two, uh, it, stames, it, it, it frames my question about that institution as boiling down. Uh, to a kind of to a kind of epistemological question about whether I can I can verify its its truthfulness. That I don't think uh, that's not a, it's not a load bearing question. Uh, that question can't bear the weight of the kinds uh, of answers that we're looking for uh, when we feel compelled in the midst of a kind of crisis to to reach out toward God and make some connection with him we need to, we need i think uh something something broader and something deeper and more substantial at the heart of our religious at the heart of our religious experience uh, that isn't just an epistemological question about the status of an institution 
right? What we need at the, at the heart of our religious experience is, is a question about Christ and about the nature uh, of our connection to him. And one way to talk about that is, is Paul's language of, of the body of Christ, as you pointed out. And I think this, this category of the body of Christ doesn't neatly coincide with the church as an institution. Right? The body of Christ is a kind of, the kind of deeper and broader and more substantial category. Uh, and it's a kind of category that I think, uh, uh, has, has enough, uh, <clears throat> has enough substance to it to respond in deep and meaningful ways to the existential longing that prompts us to ask these kinds of religious questions. And one of the benefits, as you point out, is that, you know, if we can make questions about the body of Christ, if we can put that at the center of our religious searching rather than questions about the church as an institution, then I think it helps us uh, to connect with other people in a way that is difficult otherwise. I think, number one, uh, if we put questions about the body of Christ at the center of our religious searching rather than questions about the church as an institution, I think, number one, this puts the church itself into proper perspective and allows allows the church to, to function in more meaningful and useful ways in our lives. But it also it also puts us in a position to, to appreciate and connect with those elements of the body of Christ uh, that don't have any kind of direct institutional correlate. Right, that that don't uh, that don't show up in general conference, or that that don't show up on the docket of uh, talks uh, of topics appropriate for sacrament meeting talks, right, or that don't show up in the in the context of your typical Sunday school lesson, right? There's room, there's room in the body of Christ for much more, uh, and for many more of us, and I think that's really important. Yeah, excellent, excellent. You, uh, you've got uh, two books here that just came out back to back. We're talking with Adam Miller, uh, author of Future Mormon Essays in Mormon Theology, but you also have this other book that just came out recently as well, Nothing New Under the Sun. Maybe just uh, put a little plug in for that as well. Tell the, give give us, you know, as listeners, just a, a quick uh, idea of what's going on in that book, and uh, and let us know maybe if you're working on anything else here going forward. Yeah, so Future Mormon. Uh, is my second collection. It's just kind of a collection of uh, essays about Mormon theology that I wrote over a period of a couple of years. The, the first collection of essays was uh, Rube Goldberg Machines. Uh, the other book that I recently published, apart from Future Mormon, is a little teeny book, just like 50 pages. It's called Nothing New Under the Sun, a blunt paraphrase of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and the book uh, includes an introduction to... Ecclesiastes, right? The, a book from the a wisdom book from from the Hebrew Bible, from our Old Testament, and then a kind of uh, a modern paraphrase of the substance of the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, this book, nothing new under the sun. I see it as a kind of companion volume to uh, all, another little book that I published about a year ago called "Grace Is Not God's Backup Plan." which is a very similar format where it has an introduction to Paul's letter to, to the Romans and then includes kind of a contemporary language paraphrase of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, I see these two books as kind of as kind of companion volumes that complement one another. On, on the one hand, we have uh, in the letter to the Romans Paul's uh, vision of what life in Christ looks like uh, animated by God's grace. On, on the other hand, we have in Ecclesiastes 
uh, a very bleak and uh, unapologetically pessimistic account of, of how you as a human being will fail in every respect to find happiness outside of what ultimately Paul offers uh, in terms of a life in Christ. So I think uh, if you're interested in that kind of uh, somewhat difficult uh, and pessimistic uh, outlook that we get in, then nothing new under the sun that, that could be for you too. Awesome. Excellent. And uh, I just want to put a plug in for, for Greg Coford books. Um, just a lot of great work coming out of them and, and really appreciate the stuff you're writing right now, Adam. And, and I've always... I've always admired your work from the standpoint of, of when I read your, your books, Rube Goldberg Machines, the, the one we're talking about today, Future Mormon, and, and the others, I read the one uh, on, on Paul. And you're just always kind of helping us like take on some new, just a little, you know, twist here or there, and sometimes really big leaps and jumps. And often I feel like Mormonism does a really good job of rehashing itself sometimes. And, and I just want to say I appreciate uh, your mind out there within Mormonism and the things that you're tackling and giving us uh, as Latter-day Saints and, and specifically for Latter-day Saints who need need new framings and new ways to think of things. Uh, you're just you're providing a great space for those folks, and, and I just want to say thank you for being on today. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm experimenting, and uh, I hope some of these experiments are useful for people. Shoes.